We've been talking for um, the last few weeks, just kind of moving liturgically through this um, Easter season. And it's, it's really fascinating when you break down the way the liturgy works. You've got Lent, which is a 40-day period that leads right up to Easter. And it was understood by the church as a time of preparation and the 40-ness of all of that. You know, the time of trial and testing into a rebirth is what that 40 means in, uh, in biblical symbology. And then you have Calvary, the Calvary moment, and then you have the new life of Easter, and then it starts all over again. Another period of preparation leading up to Pentecost. And so we've been talking about the nature of this. We have the first preparation that we went through, and we really tried to, to make Lent more, give it more traction and teeth, I guess. Uh, allow us to be able to see it as a time of clearing space to be able to let in new life. You, know, you can't fill a filled vessel, right? And so to be able to empty out, let that flow out so that something new can come in at Easter was what we are looking at doing. Now in this second period that the Jews call the counting of the Omer, it is a 49-day period. It's seven weeks of seven, and seven is the perfect number, the number of spiritual perfection. So seven times seven, you get the drift of where this was taking them. And then the following day was the, the second day of Shavuot, which is their festival of weeks. But also, the Jews understood that the first festival, Pesach, which coincides with Easter, was the celebration of their physical liberation from Egypt. They were physically delivered from slavery in Egypt. But it wasn't until Shavuot, at the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, at the foot of Mount Sinai, that they were actually spiritually liberated. And so you see this idea of there's a physical liberation and then a spiritual liberation. And what is separating them? Well, what's separating those two is the extreme loss that they felt when they moved out of Egypt after 400 and some years, right? Fully assimilated into Egyptian culture. When they moved out, there was the loss of all that culture, the loss of that certainty, the loss of the, the river, the Nile, that brought them life and sustainable irrigation and food. Even though they were under the yoke, even though they were slaves, at least there was some certainty there. And to move out into the wilderness with this crazy man Moses at the head was something that was a loss to them until they were able to galvanize again with the giving of the law. The law gave them back culture. The law gave them back identity. The law gave them back purpose and meaning in life. And so there was a physical liberation that was the beginning of it, but then the spiritual liberation, which really elevated them to the status of a people among the nations. Now, Jesus does the same thing, and this is what we talked about last week. Jesus makes a distinction when he was talking to Nicodemus in John 3 about there being a physical birth and a spiritual birth, right? And you can't see the kingdom of God until you have been born again into this spiritual birth. You know, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit. So Jesus makes the same distinction here between a physical liberation, a physical rebirth, a physical deliverance, and a spiritual one. And what separates those two? Well, if you look at the lives of his followers and the trajectory of their spiritual journey, what separates the two is Calvary. That Calvary moment is what separates the two. The loss of everything that they thought they had built 
in their relationship with Jesus is suddenly gone. And so if you take a look at their trajectory with Jesus, there is the physical liberation when they are actually called into Jesus' group, into Jesus' community. I mean, the easiest one to think of is Levi. Remember Levi? Matthew, Levi? He's sitting at his tax booth, right? Right at the crossroads. It was just a toll booth, basically, is what it was. Jesus walks by with his entourage, turns around and says, Levi, follow me. Now, this was a Jew who was a tax collector. There was pretty much nothing lower on the bottom of your shoe than a Jewish tax collector, a collaborator with the Romans, someone who was always cheating you anyway and making your life miserable. He didn't do anything to deserve this. He was just called. You can imagine what he was feeling, never having really any connection, any commerce, any community with his fellow Jews, and suddenly here is this holy man of whom he's heard so much calling him out. But even no less than Peter and Andrew, the fishermen, just working their nets, and here comes Jesus. He calls them out of their marginalization, out of their poverty, out of their sense of not being at the center of anything. Here comes Jesus calling them out, just as the Jews were called out of Egypt. I know when I finally landed in an evangelical church in my early 30s, I was so hungry to be part of anything larger than myself. I felt like I had been alone for decades. And I had for a certain amount of that time. To join that church, to feel accepted, to feel a part of something larger than myself, it was just like water to one of those little spider plants that's drooping, and then you put the water in, and then back up again. That's how it felt to be part of that community. Physical liberation, a deliverance from that self-centeredness, that loneliness, that sense of disconnection. But then what happens? Those followers of Jesus who are called out, they spend several years with him, right? And they're used to him now. He is their master. He is their leader. He is the one that they still believe because they misunderstand him that is going to establish this physical kingdom, this political kingdom that is going to reestablish Israel's sovereignty and they're going to be at the right and left of him, sitting at table, right? And then comes Holy Week. And Jesus all along was trying to give them the information they needed to find out what kind of leader he was, what kind of Messiah that he was, but they weren't hearing it because all they could see was their own needs and expectation. But especially starting at Holy Week, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the colt, the foal of a donkey, which obviously meant peace, but they missed that which meant humility, but they missed that. They were looking at what they wanted to see. And then Thursday night at the Last Supper, he washes their feet and just blows them away with that gesture because that was not even Jewish slaves were required to wash the feet of guests. And they still don't get it. But he leaves that place into the betrayal of Judas, into the arrest, into the conviction, you know, into the scourging, into the crucifixion. And then by Friday afternoon, everything that they thought they had is dust on the ground. Everything that they thought they had was killed right before their eyes. What do they do? They're reeling, of course, but they stay with it. And as they move through, Jesus rises again, but they don't recognize him at first. It takes them a while to be able to recognize the fact that he is still alive, even though he's right in front of them at the time. 
And then 50 days later at Pentecost, the Spirit rushes through their upper room where they're all gathered together in one place and fills them in a way that they had never been filled before. What stands between the physical liberation, the physical birth, and the spiritual liberation, the spiritual birth, is the Calvary moment. It's that loss. It's the draining away of everything that is your certainty, that is your security, that you think you're grabbing onto. I remember the time that that happened to me, because it did. Here I was a part of this community, and I thought that, you know, I really have found something here. I had already moved into music. I was in a pastoral training program. I was on my way. (laughs) And then came the moment where I realized they didn't look at me with the full membership that they looked at everybody else because of my divorce. Uh, There were certain things that I couldn't do. There were certain things that were always going to dog me and haunt me because of my divorce. And then everything that I thought I had built was dead right before my eyes. And I had to deal with that. If we deal with the Calvary moment in such a way that we keep living as if the things we believe before are true but must be true in a different way, then we get to Easter and we realize that the life is still there. And if we persist from there, we get to Pentecost. And so the question that we've been asking is, how do we get to Pentecost? Pentecost, or the way to Pentecost, always begins at Calvary. And this is something that we've got to understand. It's something that's not popular to hear because we don't want to hear about the devastation of the Calvary moment. But it is the beginning of the process from the physical liberation, the loss, the clearing away, the stripping down, and then the process to the spiritual infilling. You know, Jesus talks about this. He talks about this over and over again. In fact, he says that um, it's a gift. This Calvary moment is a gift. Can you believe that? Let's take a look at uh, John 16. Starting at verse 5. Here's Jesus trying to get them to understand. In this context, he's already told them that he's going away and they're freaking out. And he says, But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Okay, why? Why does it have to be this way? And how? How is he going to send me? Why and how? Those are real important questions. Let's take a look at the parallel in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 34. Now Moses had just been leading the people for 40 years throughout the wilderness. He delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. He had been their leader for this whole time, for two generations now. And they were right at the cusp of the promised land. All right? And here's where Moses goes. He goes up to the plains. He goes up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Yericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilad, as far as Don. So what he's doing, he's standing on the top of a mountain, Mount Nebo, which is Transjordan. It's just on the other side of the Jordan River opposite Jericho. And he's standing and he has this vista, 180-degree vista of all the land, that God has been driving the people of Israel toward. And he looks first toward the north. Dan is the furthest northern tribe. 
Now, it's interesting here because the writer is using the names of the tribes in their situation within Canaan, even though they hadn't even entered yet. So there's a little bit of a time distortion here, but it gets the point across of what is, what is Moses looking at? He's looking at the future encampment of the tribes. He's looking at Dan to the north, and then all of Naphtali, and then the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and the land of Judah as far as the western sea, and the Negev, and the valley of Jericho, and the palm trees as far as Soar. And then the Lord said to him, This is the land I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of God, died in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. Now this seems really unfair. I don't know how you feel about it but uh, I'd be calling my lawyer. (laughs) Everything that Moses did, everything that he sacrificed, he gets right to the edge of the promised land and he can't go in. Now, there's a reason that is given for him striking the rock instead of just speaking as he was supposed to to deliver the water to the people. But what's really going on here? Think about it. The people have been led by Moses for 40 years. He is the institution. He is the, almost the graven image. He is their prophet. He is their leader. All of their sustenance comes from him. All of their provision comes from him. All of their hopes rest on him. And when he strikes the rock, instead of speaking to it, the water comes from him. He now stands between the people and their direct relationship with God. They have come to rely on him physically, as a man, as a strong leader. And they have lost their connection of just depending directly on God. Moses needs to be pulled out so the people, this new generation that moves into the land, will have an opportunity to create the theocracy that that, that, um, Israel was supposed to be a direct connection with God. But as long as they're clinging on to Moses, as a man, they're not exercising the spiritual muscles that they need to be. They're not developing the sense of day-to-day dependence and the trust that is necessary for the kind of relationship that God is leading them into. It's the same thing with Jesus. Exactly the same thing is happening. For all those years, whether it's three or whether it's more, the people have been following this physical Jesus. They're drafting after him. They're depending on him. He is their sustenance. He is their provision. But what he's telling them is, it's to your advantage that I go away, that I am physically taken away, because now, then, you will have the opportunity to exercise those muscles that you need to exercise. You will have the opportunity to look for God's presence, not in physical form, but in this unseen form that infuses everything, imbues everything. And so this is where Jesus is trying to take them. This is why he tells them it's a gift. Now, they don't see it that way. And neither do we, do we? And we don't see it that way when something is being taken away from us. And when Jesus speaks of the helper coming, it's this idiomatic way of speaking that sounds like it's just a passive kind of coming, a passage bestowing of spirit on, on the people. But nothing could be further from the truth. What is really going on here is that Jesus is showing us his vulnerability. 
He's been showing that his whole life, but he's really trying to make this point now as he's getting close to the crucifixion. The foot washing was a huge bit, but this too, he is going to die. He is going to leave them. And he's going to leave them feeling vulnerable, and they're not going to feel good about it, but he's saying this is a gift. Your vulnerability is a prize. Your vulnerability is the prerequisite for everything that Pentecost is. Everything about this relationship that you are growing toward begins at the Calvary moment, begins at the moment of the acknowledgement of your vulnerability. We've got to see what Jesus is trying to do here. We've got to see how he's trying to show us that only in vulnerability is love perfected. It's the only way it works. Love is only perfected in a sense of vulnerability. And it's our ability to accept that vulnerability as a positive and necessary value is the deciding factor of whether we go to Pentecost or whether we circle back and return to a defensive position. I want you to think about that for just a second. I would imagine that every one of you has fallen in love at some point or another with a person, with a child, with a dog or a cat, something. And you know what that feels like, right? When you are completely head over heels in love. Everything looks different. Food tastes better. Colors are brighter, right? Everything has changed. What is going on here? Why is that such a euphoric feeling to be in love? What happens at in loveness is that all our defenses fall away, right? When you finally fall in love with someone, you know, especially with uh, male-female relationships, significant other relationships, there's that dance, right? Where one advances and the other retreats and you're going back and forth because everybody's worried about getting hurt. Everybody knows that as soon as I let myself go, that's why they call it falling in love, when I let myself go with this person, my heart is completely exposed. I am putting it on a platter and I can't do anything to protect it anymore. I am that connected, that open. I don't know where I end and the other begins. That is the feeling of kingdom. That's the feeling, that euphoric feeling is just all of our defenses going down. That there is one person, one thing in the universe that I can be this connected to. This is what Jesus is trying to tell us. As long as you are protecting yourself, as long as you are holding out that universal stop sign, as long as you are keeping some security between you and another. You don't know what I'm talking about, he's saying. You can't go where I'm going. It's the vulnerability that perfects the love. And only in that vulnerability will we know what it means to be in that room at Pentecost when the Spirit rushes through. And of course, it's the fear that's the deterrent, right? Of course it's the fear. It's always the fear. There was a movie... It's kind of a funny movie, but one a forgettable one. It was called Seven Days and Seven Nights. I don't know if you've all seen it. But the, the plot is, is that a man and a woman get plane wrecked on a deserted island, and they're trying to get off, but they're stuck there for seven days and seven nights. And, and they're, they're doing this and doing that and trying to get signals out and doing all the things that they do. And at one point, pirates actually show up, and they have to run from the pirates, I know, real life, right? But anyway, so they're running from the pirates, and at one point, she confesses to the man... Yeah, I am so scared. And he says, well, if it makes you feel any better, I'm pretty scared myself. And she says, no, it doesn't make me feel any better. 
I said, well, I thought you women liked that. You, you, wanted, you want your men to be able to cry and show their feminine side. And she says, no, when we're being chased by pirates, we want a mean and armed. <laughs> you know, that's the way we are with God too, right? When we're afraid, when we're being chased by our spiritual pirates, or maybe real ones, we want our God mean and armed. <laughs> you know, we don't want him vulnerable. We don't want a humble God. We don't want an unassuming God. We want the God with the howitzer on the hill over there. You know? Now, we don't want him mean to us, but we certainly want him mean to our enemies. You know, this is it. In our fear, we always want the strong... You know, have you ever come across a, a, a pastor, maybe a televangelist or someone on the radio, or maybe you've been to churches, where there's this pastor who just seems so arrogant, so inflexible, so intolerant, you know, so... Uh, and yet he's got this huge following, or she's got this huge following. What's up there? You know, We want our pastors mean and armed, too, when the world is crazy out there, don't we? We, don't, we want someone who is absolutely self-confident, absolutely certain, absolutely black and white. That gives us comfort. That gives us walls in which we can shelter. But what Jesus is trying to tell us is that as long as we're sheltering under the cover of another person, then we'll never experience the freedom of love. We'll never experience the rush of really trusting. To be in love is to be vulnerable. There's no way around it. Falling in love leaves us completely exposed. And what Jesus is telling us is that God has fallen in love with us, left himself completely exposed completely open, completely vulnerable. How do we know that God is like that? Take a look at John 1.18. No one has seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. This is John talking about Jesus. But Jesus talked about himself, too, and said, I and the Father are one. There is nothing I do that the Father doesn't do. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why do you ask to see the Father? You're looking at him right now. Jesus was vulnerable. His whole life was about the expression of vulnerability and humility. That's who he's showing the Father to be. But as long as we're afraid, as long as we're based in fear, we can't accept vulnerability as strength. We can't accept vulnerability as a positive thing. It's only when love starts to take hold when we start to fall in love ourselves with all the exposure and vulnerability that follows that, that we will begin to see, that we will begin to know that vulnerability is really the flip side of love. You can't have one without the other. Vulnerability is the flip side of Pentecost, the flip side of the fulfillment of the Spirit, which is the, the, the infilling of, of perfect love in us and through us. You can't have one without the other. This is what Jesus is trying to let us know. If you don't value vulnerability, if you don't value humility, if you're still trying to find the power position, then you haven't experienced what I'm talking about here. And you won't be able to. Think about the shape of Jesus' journey. Think about the way he went through his life. And, and just starting right here, take a look at Mark 1, starting at verse 9. This is Jesus going into the wilderness 
But let's take a look at a couple of details and how they clue us and cue us into what's really going here. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Immediately, the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. Impelled him. It's almost a violent word, ekbalo in the Greek, impelled, you know, driving him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days. There's that 40-ness again. Being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Now think about where this comes in Jesus' life. Usually, scholars put it somewhere around age 30. The last time we've seen Jesus in the scriptures, he was 12, and he was a precocious child, and he was still driving his parents crazy, right? Because he didn't tell them where he was, and they lost sight of him in the big city. All these years later, here he shows up again. What happened in those intervening years? Well, we don't know, but we can surmise. We know that Jesus was part of a family. We know that probably Joseph was already dead, which made Jesus the head of the household, the head of the family business, which was some form of of craftsmanship, either carpentry or masonry or something like that. He had brothers and sisters. He was part of a larger group. He was part of the community. And then he goes to his cousin John and is baptized by him. And John recognizes him as his superior, as his leader. John already has a huge following, is known throughout Judea. And here he is deferring to Jesus, which means Jesus had the immediate seat of power in that ministry and the ability to grab a huge following right away. He left everything that he had, everything that was secure, everything that gave him sustenance, that gave him the the sense of community. And then when power is being handed to him, he is impelled to leave that and go out into the wilderness. And notice this. It's not the devil that leads him into the wilderness, into vulnerability, into the loss that is implied there. It is the spirit that leads him to vulnerability. The devil is tempting him back to power. Notice that. Because why? Why would the devil want to give him power? Because from the power position, you can't know what love is. You cannot have a Pentecost moment from a position of power. This is what the scripture is showing us. This is what he's trying. It's so important to see these details, what's going on here. From the power position, you cannot get to Pentecost. Jesus' choice here to become vulnerable, to remain vulnerable, to move out into the wilderness at the time when he could have grabbed all sorts of power, is his choice to move toward his Pentecost moment. And if this is striking you strange, because we're talking about Jesus here, in some traditions he knew exactly who he was from the moment of birth, but even if you think about his birth, that was a birth into vulnerability as well. But Luke 2, when he was 12, tells us that he grew in wisdom and stature. The implication there, the lesson there, is that he had to grow and learn and move through life, as we all did. And Hebrews tells us he was a human being in every way that we are. We don't need to assume that he had all this figured out before he even began. 
He had to go through everything we went through. The scriptures tell us that in the wilderness, he was hungry unto death, exhausted, starving, ran himself right to the edge, to his Calvary moment, and then beyond to Pentecost. Because when he came home, when he came out of that wilderness experience and began his public ministry, he was filled with the Spirit. He was filled with power. He could say, I and the Father are one. That's what we're talking about. That's what he's talking about. And so only when we also see vulnerability as his flip side of love, will a vulnerable God become possible for us or even attractive to us. This is the the big sea change that happens when we get into this new way of looking. This is being born again. To be able to see the life from a completely different perspective. To see it from the perspective of love. To see it from the perspective of vulnerability. Everything changes. To let ourselves fall deeply in love is to let ourselves fall deeply out of control. We don't like to be out of control. Anyone like to be out of control in here? Who likes to be out of control? And yet the out of controlness of that in love feeling is what is so euphoric to us. So there's this this built-in paradox for us, isn't there? It's that complete freedom. And if as we experience this complete freedom, as we fall in love and experience the out-of-controlness, if that's manifested in speaking in tongues, that's a beautiful thing. But if you don't speak in tongues, that's a beautiful thing. If you're slain in the Spirit, if you experience holy laughter or any of the ecstatic states that are associated with being born again or baptized in the Spirit, we can't make those litmus tests for having been baptized. They're not that. They're expressions of, for some people, just the sense of being completely free, completely not in the driver's seat at that moment. In Acts 2, where they're talking about the Pentecost moment, the people who are looking at the followers, the apostles, who are speaking in all these different tongues, they think they're drunk, right? And Peter has to get them and say, hey, we're not drunk, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning, come on. You know? But they looked that way because they were so free. They were so uncharacteristically open and ecstatic. The willingness to be thought foolish, huh? The willingness to look out of control, is a part of this loss of the sense of self that allows us to move into this place, to this flip side of love. But Jesus said it, until we are born again, until we fall in love, we can't see God and we can't see kingdom. And what is kingdom? Kingdom is really what life looks like when it's in love. That's kingdom. That sense of being so connected with everything. Imagine being in love with life itself. With every moment. With everything. Every vista. Every person. Now I don't want to imply that you're going to have that ecstatic feeling for the rest of your life as you move into kingdom. Of course that's not going to happen. We're going to have our ups and downs. But there's going to be a new floor for us. There's going to be a new default position for us. There's going to be a new normal for us in which we understand how we are connected in this way. And we understand what it means to be filled with the life that is everywhere because God is everywhere. The kingdom is life as life is. 
when we're in love, completely identified, completely connected. And the hallmark of kingdom is always vulnerability. We have to start at Calvary. That's stripping down. If life doesn't do it for us, we can volunteer, as Jesus did, as we tried to do in Lent, to let things go, to quiet things down, to get down to the bottom of the dog pile and see what really is there. We can do that. But life will do it for us if we don't. (laughs) And so how do we get there? Always the question, how do we get there? And as we said last week, we get there by living as if we're already there. That's the only way we can do this. If we start making choices that we would make if we had this kind of connection, even if we don't feel it, but practice the connection, practice the mindfulness, practice the presence, practice treating others as if they are ourselves, because in this spiritual sense they are, if we can do that, then we will get there long before you realize you've arrived. All of a sudden, you will understand you are in a different place than you were before. That the tongues of fire have fallen over your head. Even if you weren't aware of it at the moment, you know that you know that it's true. And as Paul said, when we're weak, we're strong. Let's pray. Father, we probably don't have to be reminded of our weakness. We know it all too well. We fear it. We try to hide it. We try to improve it. Help us to understand that the weakness is not a bad thing in itself. Help us to come to terms with our vulnerabilities. Help us to come to terms with the things that are not perfect in our eyes. Help us to move forward anyway, even though we feel that we're not ready, we're not finished, we're not yet able, but to move forward anyway and find out that connection is always possible in you. No matter where we are, how finished we feel, it doesn't matter because you are who you said you were and are. A perfect lover who loves indiscriminately. Help us to experience that by having the courage to be imperfect, the courage to move out as if we are worthy of connection so that we can find out that we are. And in so doing, find this fullness of your spirit that we so crave. Thank you for making this available to us, Lord, every moment of our lives. Thank you for always being there and guiding us in your scripture, in each other, in nature, in every moment. Thank you, Father. Thank you for loving us. Don't let us forget, we can only love because you already loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.